Well, amen to that. And I thank Trinity and Henry and Maria and Caleb and Caitlin for bringing us Psalm 46. That's not the passage for our text this morning, but it was a good introduction. I thought back when I was about their age as a teenager, I was challenged to memorize Psalm 46. And what I found true in my own life was that Psalm 46 became a go-to psalm for me throughout many spots in my life. And I thought, uh, not only is that a psalm that, uh, that speaks to our day very clearly, for example, you see in the first few verses, God is our refuge, God is our strength, he is a very present help in trouble, and because of that, we will not fear. Though the earth should shake, though the mountains slip into the heart of the sea, for them, the mountains were a place of security, a place to run to the hills, for away from the floods, from the fires, from many battles, a place that could be secure. In Washington in 1980, Mount St. Helens was the largest eruption ever known in the U.S. history for the 48 contiguous states. Mount St. Helens erupted with the power of 1,600 times the atomic bomb dropped in Hiroshima. 57 died, 200 homes were devastated. Ash went as far as what I heard from clear on, out here to Oklahoma. There was a landslide that went some 50 miles. I-90 was closed for 10 days. Um, that was the worst example of what he describes here at the beginning when the earth shakes and the mountains are moved and slip into the heart of the sea. That was a time for the people. As Sue and I lived in Oregon, we went up and toured the area and remembered hearing the guide talk about how uncontrollable that was, how they were at such a mercy to the events of the occasion. In that time, the psalmist says, that's the time when we need to know that God is our refuge. We need to know that God is our strength. We need to know that God is our very present help in trouble. And I think that applies to this year, doesn't it? There have been a number of events that have been out of our control. We're at the mercy of the events, and we realize how little control we really have. Whether it's the threat to our health, whether it's financial security, whether it's jobs that come and go, whether it's school that get in, gets interrupted and you don't know how it'll come back this fall, whether it's the mayhem in the streets, or this weekend it's even the Sahara, Sahara sand desert, desert running in on Oklahoma. In any way, we see that we have very little control in our lives compared to what we hope we do. And those are the times when we have to figure out what is it that we lean on that we can depend on, that we can trust even in those times. Well, he goes on there in Psalm 46, the Lord of hosts, he's the supreme one. He's with us. The God of Jacob, the one who has done great miracles that we know about in, in the Old Testament history, he's the one who is our fortress. Therefore, we can cease striving. Be still and know he says that I am God. He switches it to the first person. You need to know that I am God. And that's how you can cease striving. That's how you can be still. That's how you can know that God is your refuge and mine, that he's your strength and my strength, 
that he's your very present help in trouble and my very present help in trouble. And so he repeats it at the end of Psalm 46 a second time, because the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Well, this was the second reason that I picked Psalm 46 is because a couple times he talks about the God of Jacob and describes that for us. In the book of Genesis, we're going to look at a number of spots where God became the God of Jacob, but it took a while. It took many years in Jacob's lifetime for him to realize how true that was. In those chapters, we'll see the history march on. We'll see God's providence in building the nation of Israel with his 12 sons and then many descendants after that in the history of the people of Israel. But also in these 11 chapters that we'll glance at spots in, we see that not only is that a history of the nation beginning, but it's also, it's also a very personal account of a struggling man with many flaws who finds out what it's like to relate to a God with no flaws, no struggles. So it's my prayer this morning that as we see that, we realize how much of a refuge God is to us, how much of a strength he is to us, how much of a very present help in our times of trouble that he is. And it's my prayer that uh, you see that as God proposes to reach out to you in greater and deeper ways to know you personally, that you would find how you want to know him personally as well. Let's pray together. Lord, I thank you for Jacob's life. I thank you for the preparation you've done in my own heart for this day. I thank you that you, it's your word that is living and active and even reaches into the thoughts and intents of our heart. Lord, I thank you for the love of Jesus who gave his life for us. And it's his name we pray. Amen. Well, so this... this uh, sermon today is titled Lessons from Jacob Wrestling for a Blessing. If you know about Jacob, the literal meaning of Jacob was he was a heel grabber, which also if you look even in your ESV footnotes, that means he was a cheat. <laughs> that means he was deceptive. That means he was a manipulator. That was, means that he took advantage of people whenever he could. And so that's why uh, really he was a wrestler. He was a wrestler with people and we'll see that in a number of ways through um, through the charting of his life. Wrestling for a blessing, that was what almost it seemed like his whole life was about. But in some ways, he didn't know what he was wrestling for. He just kept wrestling to see what the outcome would be. Well, first of all, in this uh, chart you have before us, I guess you could call it a life map. I don't know if you ever went through any workshops with life maps, but they bored me to tears. But this one's really brief, only has a few blanks in it. So I think you'll survive with me, will you? The first thing that I see in Jacob, what he was wrestling for was a family blessing in the family that he grew up in. First with his brother Esau. Look with me at chapter 25. If you're going to follow along in the scriptures, I'll start at the beginning and kind of bounce back and forth. But if you want to look through, this is Genesis 25, starting at verse 21. And it says, And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife, because she was barren, and the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her. And she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. 
the older shall serve the younger. Already a prophecy of what was to come between Jacob and his brother Esau. And then it goes on to describe that birth. Verse 24, when her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak, so they called him Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. Then going down to uh, see how he wrestled for a blessing with his brother Isaac, you see starting his brother Esau, you see in verse 29. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew, red stew for I'm exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Edom. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. And Esau said, I'm about to die. Well, of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. So right here up front, Jacob was a wrestler to take advantage of anybody he could and he found out a way to take advantage of Esau and get that birthright. Well, what did that mean? Well, he needed to seal the deal with his father Isaac, of course, to, to seal that blessing. And so that's the next wrestling he does. Look at verse uh, 20, chapter 25, verse 27, going back to how this family was raised. It says, when the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. So here in his relationship between Jacob and his father Isaac, it seemed pretty distant. It wasn't, he knew that he wasn't favored. He knew that Isaac favored his brother Esau. And so when it came time for Isaac being an old man to pass on the official un unremovable blessing, he talked to his older by a couple minutes, his older son Esau, and asked him to prepare a meal for him, his favorite meal. And then he would give him his blessing. And so as, Isaac, as, as Jacob and his mother overheard that, they made a plan and he uh, figured out how to deceive his almost blind Isaac to go in dressed with animal skins over his arms and the, the clothes of Esau so that he smelled like Esau. And he fooled his father into giving him, Jacob, the younger, not the older, that blessing. And so it seemed like he wrestled a blessing away from Isaac. But then if you look uh, later in chapter 27 at verse 41, it describes now Esau, because of this, hated Jacob, because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to him, the days of mourning for my father are approaching. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. But you know what he didn't know was Isaac was going to live 80 more years before he could pull this off, if, if indeed he was going to follow that chronology. So because of that, Jacob was sent away. He had to flee so that Esau wouldn't, out of anger, kill his brother. And so Rebekah and Isaac agreed that Jacob should be sent away, go up to the family of his uncle Laban to uh, see if in that community he could find a wife because at this point he was still single. And so here comes the lightning bolt in your life map. That stands for the first time that God shows up and Jacob has a personal encounter with God. But it was just at the right time. And you'll see why, but just to reflect in our own lives, how often God steps into your life, brings a friend, brings truth from his word, brings a prompting from the Holy Spirit, 
when you and I are in a tough spot and we need it, that God provides that. You and I, who've walked with the Lord for a while, have so many stories to share about that. Well, so there were a couple things that were so true of Jacob in this situation when he first meets with the Lord. First of all, he's alone. There's nobody else with him. He's traveling. He stops to use a pillow as, as a rock for the night. This is, he's a tent dweller. This is the first time he's probably been away from anywhere, and here he is walking. This is going to be a 400-mile trek for a tent dweller. I bet it took him a while. And so here he is alone, and he's fleeing from his brother, fleeing for his life. He had wrestled, he thought, and won. He won the birthright from Esau, his brother. He had won the, the blessing from his father, Isaac, and yet now it seemed like it was all lost. He was having to leave the land. He had no family. He was a single. And God comes in a dream to Jacob that night. He stands at the top of a stairway, and up and down the stairway are, are passing angels. And one of the things that God assures Jacob is of the covenant promises that he would give to he and his descendants. You'd have a land. You'd have descendants. You'd have a blessing that would bless the entire earth. <clears throat> and so Jacob hears that firsthand. But look at verse 15 of chapter 28, where God says, Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised to you. So Jacob's response was to call this place Bethel, which means house of God, and then also, because surely the Lord was in this place, and then also to make a vow, a vow to God, starting down at verse 20, where he said, then Jacob made a vow saying, if God be with me and will keep me in his way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone, which I have set up as a pillar, shall be God's house, and all that you give me, I will give a tenth back to you. Now, I'd call this a very conditional vow. He says, all right, God, if you do all that stuff that you promised to me, but, you know, add, let's add food, let's add clothes, let's add a safe travel, and if you do all that, yeah, you'll be my God. And in fact, I'll build a house for you, and I'll even give you a tenth of everything that you give to me. Jacob was a wrestler and a schemer, and he was here, right, trying to bargain with God himself. Well, then he goes on. He travels that 400 miles to his uncle Laban's. Probably took him a month. Probably wasn't in very good shape being a tent dweller. And so in this second season of his life, we see that Jacob is wrestling for what I call a manhood blessing. He's wrestling for a manhood blessing, first of all, for a family. He gets to Laban's area. He finds Rachel. She's very beautiful to him. He wants to take him as his wife. He talks to Laban and tries to make a deal, and Laban says, all right, I'm a schemer. You're a schemer. I tell you what, let's work seven years, and I'll let you have her. And so that night of the wedding after seven years, when it gets dark, Laban switches up Rachel for his older daughter Leah, and behold, Jacob wakes up the morning, and he's married to a different gal. And her name is Leah. Well, Jacob was the winner of this match. He's maybe a better schemer than, or, excuse me, Laban was a better schemer maybe than even Jacob was at this point. 
Well, so he uh, bargains with Laban and, and Laban agrees to give him this coveted woman, Rachel, as a wife also if he'd work seven more years for him. So Laban wrestled 14 years out of this guy, but he had uh, 12 sons and daughters and had a, had a big family during this time. But then it came time for him to bargain with Laban about a fortune, not only just to build a family, but now also to build a fortune in his life to be able to have some things of his own that he could support a family with. And so first, um, it's two deceivers going at it with each other. And as Jacob described it, you know, Laban has changed my wages 10 different times. <laughs> and Jacob, if you recall the story, switched out the flock, made sure he got the good ones, and Laban did not get the good ones, and Laban's servants. And they knew that, but that's the way those guys dealt with each other. So we see, even amid all of that, that it was God's providence to build up Jacob's life and build up his fortune and his family. But then it came time six years later for God to give a command to Jacob to say, go back to the land. It's time to return. And so Jacob gathers up his family, gathers up his flocks, his herds, and heads on out. Laban finds out about it. Laban pursues him to even harm him. God warns him not to do that. But they have a spot where they have, to, they have to have a truce between the two of these wrestling deceivers. And they decide, okay, we're going to set up this pile of stones. If you cross it this way, I can do you harm. If I cross it that way, I can do you harm. And so he left fleeing again. A man who thought he had wrestled away a family and a fortune. But now things aren't so sure. And, and this is the time where in that second lightning bolt, God appears to Jacob a second time. God appears to Jacob to reassure him. If you're looking along with me as you stroll through these passages, chapter 32 starts with angels of God coming to visit Jacob to reassure him that indeed he is present with him and Jacob names that a place of two camps. But it seems like an unwinnable spot that Jacob is in. He's fleeing from Laban who wants to do him harm if he dare come back. He's coming to meet up with Esau who now he hears has 400 men with him. And what does that sound like? That sounds like a death threat right there. Here he has wrestled with Laban and he has won. But now maybe it's all going to be lost as he faces what will be a meeting with Esau that probably won't turn out very good. So he's fleeing Laban. He's facing Esau. And again, as verse 24 of chapter 32 says, and Jacob was left alone, alone with his thoughts. Times when we're alone in a crisis and we're alone with our thoughts. Times when our dreams are shattered. Times when our hopes are on the brink. We stop and we're alone with our thoughts. Those are the times, whether it's something by being cut from the team or passed up from a job or something way more serious where terminal shows up in the health record or the loss of a loved family member. Those are the times when we stop and we say, what do I know about God and what do I trust in him? Those are the times when we're alone and those thoughts about that are vital. British pastor and author R. T., Dr. R.T. Kendall calls something that he says 100% of us as Christians face. It's called the betrayal barrier where we come at a point in our life, we come to a time of crisis where we're asking questions, we're searching for who God really is in my life and how does he answer those questions. 
that we come to a watershed point in our life to decide if we're going to trust in what God's doing or if we aren't. And he calls it the betrayal barrier, and sadly, I'm not even going to give you the percentage because it's really high, but he thinks that the majority of believers get stuck here and don't ever get back past that betrayal barrier. They don't break through. They feel abandoned by God. Their questions aren't answered. Their questions of who God is don't become firm in their life. They don't know if he's a refuge. They don't know if he's a strength. They don't know if there's, he's their help in times of trouble. And if we don't know, it takes us out of, down a path that's fueled by anxiety, that's fueled by struggle, that's fueled by depression, that's fueled by bitterness in our lives. Many of us have been there. You know what that's about. But if we can answer yes, if we can answer yes, Lord, you are my refuge. I trust that you are my strength. I trust that you are my very present help in trouble, that we can work through that betrayal barrier to see how God's at work in our life. And that's where I want to skip down to that second row in this life map and look at some things about how Jacob viewed God and how that progressed in his own life. As we see, first of all, I'm going to say that Jacob viewed God as a story. God is a story. And first of all, he saw that clearly in the patriarchs. He heard from his grandfather Ab Abraham. He heard from his father Isaac about what had God had done. And, and you notice, as you might have looked through, there's a number of places where God is described, and he, he often calls him the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac never says he's my God. And then he says to his own family, well, he's the God of my father. He's not my God. Then he says to Laban, he's the God of my father Abraham, and he's the fear of Isaac. But he never claims that he's my God. In fact, he even says in his prayer of desperation that we'll see in a minute, he he, he says to the Lord himself, you are the God of my father Abraham. You are the God of my father Isaac. That's the best I can do. That's the best I can say. But you know and I know that he needed God to be his God. He needed to be able to break through that betrayal barrier. Well, the other part of uh, the God is a story is the promises of God. Jacob lived to about age 15 before his grandfather Abraham died. And so probably because he didn't have much of a relationship with his father Isaac, he may have heard may, many more of the stories of, of God's deliverance and God's work in his father and his grandfather through his grandfather Abraham. Abraham would have told him how he came to this land because it was a calling of God. Abraham would have told him, I was without a son till I was 100 years old and then your dad was born. What a great miracle that he would have seen and heard from Abraham. Many of you maybe can gr have grown up with God as a story. God is somebody that you heard about from others in your family, others at your church, and maybe felt like an outsider looking in. That, that was my experience. My father had a story where he saw an angel when he was five years old because shortly after that his mother died. And he looked on that as God's reassurance. He looked at that as God coming in and touching his life and reassuring him that, hey, I'm with you. My presence is with you. You don't have to fear. You can see me as a refuge and a strength. And so I grew up around a father that was fervent about that. He had us reading out of the King James Bible twice a day, 
once at breakfast and once at bedtime in a circle in the living room, and then we would kneel and we would pray. And that happened every day without fail. I could see that in my dad, but I was an outsider looking in. God was just a story to me. Well, in that second phase of Jacob's life, he began to view God a little different because he had this dream. He had a first-hand encounter with God where he could see him face-to-face and realize that God, yes, God is a reality. In fact, Jacob could hear firsthand by what God told him that indeed the promises that I gave to Abraham and to Isaac are true for you. God is powerful. And in fact, God was able to tell that to Jacob firsthand. Not only that Abraham and Isaac found that to be true, but now you, Jacob, can find that true as well, and you can trust in that. And he did. And then I thought it was amazing in chapter 28, start back at uh, verse 16, after he responded to that dream, he said, Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. Jacob was amazed. He thought he'd heard of God as a story. He knew that God had made promises, and now they were delivered to him. But he thought that this, that this God was kind of a local thing. That was the, the culture of the day. You travel away from a territory, you have to find a different God, because that God stayed back with, in his case, back with Isaac. But now he realized God is present here. Surely the Lord is in this place. And I didn't even know it. I didn't even expect it. Jacob understood, especially through this encounter, that indeed God firsthand was powerful and that he was present. In our times, when we have those times of aloneness, where we're asking questions and we face a crisis or a difficult spot, and we ask, is, in, is God in control? The answer is he's powerful. Can I believe that? We ask, does, does God know? Is he aware of my situation? Well, Jacob's answer was now indeed, he is present. He is my refuge. He is my strength. And if so, and this was the part of the question that Jacob still wrestled with. Does God care? Is he active? Oh, I know he's, I know he's got promises for my descendants. I know that he's been present and I'm seeing him here face to face. What does he really care? Many of you um, are familiar with the author Philip Yancey, uh, books and articles and speaking. Yancey's in his 70s now and has been very prolific as an author. Very helpful. You, you may or may not remember his growing up story. Philip Yancey, um, at age one, his father contracted polio and lived the rest of his time in an iron lung in a, in a hospital ward. And Philip was too, early, too young to remember this, but as he was told, they as a family would go visit and look through the window, and the only way their dad could see them was through a mirror um, up above his head that he could see the family come to visit. He couldn't talk to them, uh, couldn't be in the same room with them. And Philip's dad had pledged and told people that he was planning to be an overseas missionary. It was loved by other believers, and they were rooting for him. And they decided, as they prayed for him, that indeed God had, would, be, would choose to heal Philip's father. And so they talked Philip's father into pulling the plug on this lung machine because God was going to heal him. 
Well, indeed, two weeks later, he died. And so as Philip Yancey looks back at that, he realizes he lived as he grew up under a cloud of unanswered prayer. He lived under a cloud of that betrayal barrier that wondered if God really is active, if God really does care. And as Philip graduated from journalism class, he started reading in, and I, I grew up reading the Reader's Digest. They had these drama in real life stories. And Philip Yancey wrote a number of those. He, he enjoyed writing people's histories and seeing how they handled a crisis and how they made it through. And one of the things he discovered was how horrible Christians dealt with crisis, how they would not know how to make sense out of that, or how they would say to other people in crisis such cruel things. And so already in his 20s, he wrote that book that's still around, Where is God When It Hurts? And he became well-known to address that kind of a subject in a way that tries to see how does God care? How is God active in our lives? Then he wrote one later on called Disappointment with God. And then in these later years, he, he wrote again called the, the answer, that, the, the question that never goes away. And through these things, he traveled the world in, in a lifetime of going to different crises and helping people see where is God active in the middle of these crises and what is God doing? Well, Philip uh, also wrote about how one time he went back to visit his mother and they went through some of his old pictures and one of them was just a crumpled up photo of a baby picture. And he asked, well, why did you keep that? And she said, well, that's the, that's the picture I put in your dad's lung machine so he could see you. And that, that became special to her and she kept that after his death. And he writes, and I'll just read this part to you. He says, when my mother told me the story of the crumpled photo, I had a strange and powerful reaction. It seemed odd to imagine someone caring about me whom in a sense I had never met. During the last months of his life, my father had spent his waking hours staring at those three images of his family, my family. There was nothing else in his field of view. What did he do all day? Did he pray for us? Yes, surely. Did he love us? Yes, but how can, he, how can a paralyzed person express his love, especially when his own children are banned from the room. I have often thought of that crumpled photo for it is one of the few links connecting me to the stranger who was my father, a stranger who died a decade younger than I am now, someone I have no memory of, no sensory knowledge of, spent all day, every day thinking of me, devoting himself to me, loving me as well as he could, perhaps in some mysterious way, he is doing so now in another dimension. Perhaps I will have time, much time, to renew a relationship that was cruelly ended just as it had begun. I mention this story because the emotions I felt when my mother showed me that crumpled photo were the very same emotions I felt that February night in a college dorm room when I first believed in a God of love. Someone is there, I realize. Someone is watching life as it unfolds on this planet. More, someone is there who loves me. It was a startling feeling of wild hope a feeling so new and overwhelming that it seemed fully worth risking my life on. So when Philip Yancey, through all of his growing up years, had to answer those questions, is God present? Is God in control? Does God care? He was willing to risk his life on the answer, yes, check, 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 to all those three things. But yet Jacob still struggled with that. He gave him a conditional, conditional vow. If you do all the things you say and if you add clothes and food and safe travel, then, then, then you'll be my God. But you know what we see in the journey of Jacob's life when he 
when it was time to move on from being with Laban was that he saw God's power. And so when God said, it's time to go back to the promised land, he knew God's promises. He was willing to say, yes, you are powerful and I'll obey, I'll go, although I don't know how it's gonna turn out. He also understood that God was present. You can see that in his prayer of desperation as he's afraid that the very next night Esau is gonna come and end his life. Chapter 32, verse 9, And Jacob said, O God of my father Abram and God of my father Isaac, O Lord, who said to me, Return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good. I'm not worthy of the least of the deeds of steadfast love and faithfulness that you've shown to your servant. For with, my, with only my staff I crossed this Jordan, and I have become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, that he may come and attack me and the mothers with the children. But you said... I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for a multitude. Well, Jacob, the wrestler, Jacob, the one who should find leverage in every situation, had no more leverage. He had nowhere else to turn but to God's promise and say, please, please deliver me. Do you care? Are you active? And so Jacob here, remember, was fleeing Laban. He was facing Esau, and he was alone. And God appears. And Jacob wrestles for God's blessing. Well, this time he wrestles literally. It's an actual wrestling match in the middle of the night. And if you didn't know, Jacob is now 97 years old, and he's getting ready to wrestle all night. <laughs> that was a big deal. Well, he wrestles with what he thought was a man in the darkness, what Hosea describes as an angel of the Lord. And indeed, Jacob realizes when his hip becomes dislocated before morning that indeed this is more than just a mere man. And the man says to him, let me go, the light's coming. And he says, I won't let you go till you bless me. I'd rather, if this is the face of God, I'd rather die than lose a blessing. I'm wrestling for the real blessing that I need. And so indeed, chapter 32, verse 28, then he said, then the angel said to Jacob, your, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. You've striven with men, you strove with Esau, you strove with Isaac, you strove with Laban, and in some ways you won, but now you've striven with God. And you won. You got the real blessing that matters. What you've been searching for and wrestling for all your life, you finally found. Because look at the way Jacob says it in verse 30. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet, <laughs> yet my life has been delivered. Two things about Jacob's wrestling for a blessing with God. First of all, he got a new name. He was a deceiver. He was a manipulator. He was one who took advantage of everybody. And now God gives him a new name. You are Israel. You're a God struggle. You struggle with God. You struggle for God. And also, Jacob ended up with a limp, a limp that apparently followed him for the rest of his lifetime in his wrestling for a blessing. And it was probably that limp that led him to be able to be reconciled with Esau. He couldn't run away from Esau. He couldn't even wrestle with him. 
All he could do is walk up and be at the mercy of what God was going to do. And by God's design, these two reconciled. Later on, you see some fruits of this new life, new name with a limp in Jacob, and you see that he gets his family before they move on to the next place to, to bury their idols. Our strength is not in that stuff now. I know now that my strength is in the Lord. And also you see that he, was a very, he became a very caring man, not taking advantage of every person he came across, um, but became a very caring man even in showing great sympathy towards his mother when her nurse died, and they, they described that in detail. Well, then he goes on to Shechem, which was actually the very same place that Abraham first entered the promised land when he came to what God was going to give him. And in chapter 33, down at verse 18, Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, on his way from Padamaram, and he camped before the city. And from the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, he bought for a hundred pieces of money the piece of land in which he had pitched his tent. There he erected an altar and called it El Elohe Israel. God the God of Israel, God, the God of the God struggler. This wasn't just a, a monument to the God of Israel. This was a monument to God, who was the God of Israel. No longer was God a force to be reckoned with. God was a person to be loved, to be enjoyed, just as God desires for us, not just to know about him, but of course to know him, as we often say. Know him in a relationship that is personal. For he, as Psalm 139 says, is acquainted with all your ways. Zephaniah says he rejoices over you with singing. This is the kind of God that loves us and wants us to love and enjoy him. Well, three lessons for us. First of all, be historical. <laughs> Be historical. Be one as a parent who tells stories to your kids about what God's doing, what God has done in your life. Pass those, word, those stories on. If you're a kid and your parents aren't a storyteller, ask them. Ask them what God's done. What is God doing? It was my blessing last summer to prepare a worship service for my mother's family. Um, had 11 kids, all of them but one had already passed at that point. We had just had a memorial service for the second to the last. And I, I read through this big, thick notebook of scripts from grandparents and from uncles and aunts on my mother's side of times that they faced in their life and what scriptures or what songs were meaningful to them. And we put that together to reflect on different ways that God worked in our, in our specific ancestors and what God did and how God was such a blessing I think, at least to me, in reviewing that and seeing what, what that was. My father, who's 97 years old and is incarcerated in a nursing home because of COVID, has a, has a verse on his rolling desk that says from Psalm 78, we will not hide these truths from our children. We will tell the next generation about the glorious deeds of the Lord, about his power and his mighty wonders. The second lesson for us besides being historical, is be in the word. We see that Jacob, even as he struggled with God himself, that he, that he based what he did on the promises of God and acted on that. But now, Jacob had heard from God firsthand and he was willing to obey. 
just as you and I in the Word and the Scriptures can hear firsthand from God each day as God wants to show us what He does and how He wants to work in our life. To know God personally in a relationship, not just know about Him. Well, I found it interesting. I found a Center for Bible Engagement website that's connected with Back to the Bible that's been around for longer than I have. And they interviewed around the world in different countries and cultures over 100,000 different people to see what kinds of things affected their lives so that they could find to live above what the average struggles were by other surveys in people's lives and what those struggles, what the biggest struggles were. And they found what they called the power of four. That was the one element that they narrowed it down to if for the, those people who spend four days, at least four days per week, engaging with the scriptures, that there's a radical change in their attitudes and in their behavior. And you can see some percentages on the slide for the power of four. If you read the scriptures at least, engage with them four days a week, 60% less chance you'll feel spiritually stagnant. 44% chance you'll feel less that you can't please God. Feeling bitter goes way down. Feeling destructive to yourself or others goes down 32%. Difficulty forgiving others or feeling discouraged goes down in the 30s. Experiencing loneliness goes down in the 30%. Even experiencing fear and anxiety goes down. Those attitudes change, but also the behaviors. The next slide shows that even drinking to excess goes down 60-some percent. Viewing pornography, having sex outside of marriage goes down 59%. Lashing out in anger, neglecting family, even mishandling food and money changes for the better when we spend at least four days per week engaging the Word, receiving it, reflecting on it, responding to it. And then the positives that it shows too, it's a share our faith with others, to disciple others is up over 200% over those who don't do it that often, who don't spend four days in the Word. Four days a week in the Word means that you, you'll uh, be 400% more likely to memorize Scripture or to give financially. Well, the third thing that uh, is a good lesson from Jacob's life is remember whose you are. Well, Jacob, even though he had been 97 when he wrestled with God all night, he lived another 50 more years. So he didn't die till he was 147 years old. But at the end of those 147 years, there's a spot in Genesis 49 where we see how Jacob blesses his sons. And look at what he talk, look how he talks about God there. He says, he is the mighty one of Jacob. That's me. He's my mighty one. He's the shepherd of the rock of Israel. That's me. He's my rock. He's my shepherd. He's the God of your father. That's me. He's the God of Jacob. Finally, he could say that to his sons because he had a new identity. He had a new name that, that the Lord himself had given him. As believers, we realize from 2 Corinthians 5, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old is past. The new has come. Well, as we close today in prayer, I invite the worship team to come back up to get ready for their last song. And as they do, we're going to uh, recite my personal paraphrase of parts of Psalm 46. We're going to do that on the slides together. 
And before we do that, I invite for those who are online, we're going to be sharing communion after this prayer and the song. And you're welcome to grab a, a bread and a cup to share that with us if you're a believer as you prepare for that. So I invite you to stand with me. I'm going to ask you to read out loud with me this prayer to God. O God of Israel, you are my refuge. You are my strength. You are my very present help in time of trouble. Therefore, I will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains slip into the heart of the sea. I will be still and know that you are God. The Lord of hosts is with me. The God of Jacob is my fortress. Amen.